I won't ask you what sort of 12-year-old you were. I was a little bit surprised, if I'm honest. When I found this picture, I searched for a picture of a 12-year-old to put up for you just to get the idea of what Jesus might have been like at that sort of age. And I thought, oh, he doesn't look 12. I thought I'd have given him maybe about eight, possibly. And then as I looked around this morning, I thought, you know, I know some of these kids are 12. And it's quite young, isn't it? And it kind of made me think again about Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old and what that would have been like. We're looking at this term at Luke's Gospel and we're trying to give ourselves an overview, again thinking about who is Jesus. And I wonder if you've got a favourite Gospel. I would encourage you to, because when you're talking to someone and you think, I want to find this thing about Jesus, it's often better to have like a gospel that you know really well, and then you can turn to where you know that it is. So here are kind of the four gospels and how they focus slightly differently to help us out. So Matthew, the longest of the gospels, a real focus uh, for the Jews. So Matthew's whole point is, how can I prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the rescuer, the saviour, the redeemer that you've been waiting for for 700 plus years? And so that's where Matthew is. And a lot of what he writes is teachings. He wants to focus on the teachings that Jesus gave. Next of all, we've got Mark. And Mark's kind of an action-based gospel. Uh, Kind of most of what he does is to do with Jesus' arrest and death and resurrection, because that's the thing that's going to make the difference and mean that we can be forgiven because Jesus died and rose again. So that's Mark. Then we've got John. I always think like an intellectual sort of gospel, if you like, but perhaps not. Um, And John's kind of a spiritual sort of gospel. He spends a lot of time focusing on the difference it's going to make us inside, but also he begins in a slightly different way with the God who was the word in the beginning. So it's a kind of big picture gospel. And of course, in John, you've got the I am sayings. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate and so on helps us to think about who Jesus is. And then finally, we've got the one that we're actually going to look at, which is my favourite. And because I'm the vicar, I get my favourite. And so we're thinking about Luke's gospel. And Luke's gospel is great, I think, for a few reasons. One is it's methodical. It's quite easy to follow. And he does that on purpose. I think the second thing is it focuses on outsiders. There's a lot about women in it. There's a lot about the poor in it. There's a lot about people who would be on the outside of kind of your standard communities. And so I think from that point of view, it's, it's helpful. And I think the second reason it's helpful is because it's part of a set of two. So you get Luke and the same author wrote Acts. And so you get the story of Jesus and the starts of his ministry and where that led. And then you get Acts after his resurrection telling you what happened in the church. And so you get that whole flow through in the book of Luke. We're thinking today, though, a bit about Jesus from the start of Luke's gospel. And if you're anything like me, when you do a to-do list, you put some things on there that you've already done because then you can tick them and you feel better about it. And that's kind of what we've got with Luke because we're starting it just after Christmas. We've already done a bit of Luke's gospel because that's where you find all the starting bits of Jesus' life. So let me just give us a little overview. What do we already know from the start of what we've looked at in Luke's gospel? So we already know that John the Baptist was born miraculously to Elizabeth because she was old, she couldn't have had kids, and God does this miraculous birth. We know that he was meant to prepare the way for Jesus. Then we know that Mary, equally miraculous, but the other end of the spectrum because she was really young and hadn't had sex, 
Well, I can say sex because the kids aren't here anymore and hadn't said sex. And so she has a miraculous birth as well. And we know a little bit about who the baby would be thanks to Luke. We know that he would be called Jesus. That was told to Mary, that he would be great and be called the son of God, that he would be in the line of David and he would reign over a kingdom which would not end. In the bit I've missed out, he was circumcised on the eighth day and Simeon the prophet meets him in the temple and says, my eyes have seen the salvation from God, which he has prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel, the people of God. And all of that helps to set the stage. It's the kind of next chapter in a very long story. Because it starts kind of way back. And Abraham, for example, was told by God that, that God would be his God, that they would be the people of God, but also that they would be a blessing to all nations. And that's why Simeon's prophecy is so important, a light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. It's going to go out from here. So all of that leads us up to where we're up to today, which is our passage in chapter 2. And if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it. I would encourage you to bring your own, actually, as we go through this series, because then you can make notes in the margins and change things. We're not quite there yet. If we can just hop back one slide, please. So Jesus is about 12, and that probably gives you an idea of what he might have looked like and been like. We know where he is because we know that he's gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And in a sense, there's a bit of an irony there because he's gone to celebrate the Passover when the angel of death passed over those people when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt. And just before that, you've got the plagues and the angel of death, the last plague, and it passes over the people's houses where they've put the lamb's blood on their doorposts. And so we're meant to make that kind of link. Jesus is going to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at different points in his life, we're told he's off to celebrate the Passover. And it reminds us again, what is Jesus' role? He is that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that he wasn't just there. If you notice in your passage, he wasn't just there with his parents. But when he was traveling away for a day, he was with his relatives and his friends. And I wonder, does that tell us a little bit about our role as a church? That perhaps our relationship to our young people and our children is something where many of us will share in helping to raise them in faith. Jesus was part of a community of faith. I think we often think about him just with his parents, but he wasn't. He was actually with a whole community of people, many of whom we don't get to know much about. Throughout the celebration, he stayed in Jerusalem and then his parents leave, but he stays. And that makes me feel better about parenting because <laughs> I've never lost my kids for four days. But Mary and Joseph, they lose him for one day. They think he's with relatives. Then they go back and they spend three days looking for him. I don't know where you imagine that they went to try and find him. But they were clearly worried, weren't they? But what's the image on Jesus' face? Is he worried? I'm sure if we dropped any of our 12-year-olds in a city, they would probably struggle for three days. I don't know where they would sleep. I don't know who they would see. But Jesus does not seem to be panicked by any of that. He spends three days debating and discussing. And I think when reading this, he's got incredible confidence, hasn't he? 
Like, I think most of our 12-year-olds would not go into the temple anyway. And if they did, they wouldn't go and debate with the teachers and the people who knew things. They wouldn't do that. And yet Jesus has incredible confidence. And it makes me wonder that although Jesus obviously is God, I wonder what our benchmarks are for our teenagers. I wonder how we could see them going for it with God, having confidence, not being intimidated by people. Perhaps that's a prayer for us as well to not feel that sense. His parents tell him off for his lack of respect, it seems, for not going with them. Almost a disobedient child. But then he seems to tell them off for not knowing where he would be. And the passage ends with him choosing to return with them and to be submissive. And this morning I wanted to tell you just a tiny bit of Greek and it's not scary, so we're going to be okay. Greek was the language that this passage was written in and Luke had a really easy way of saying the most important sentence in the chapter, that Jesus was at his father's house. There's a dead straightforward word for house in the Greek. It would have been really easy for Luke to use it, but he doesn't. So let me just show you what it looks like in the original. You can go ooh and ah if you like, but I'm not very good at this, to be honest. So why is it that you were seeking me? Jesus' question right at the top. The middle bit, now the word order is different because it just is. Not knew you that in the house of the father of me, it behooves me to be. We should have included the word behooves today, but we didn't. But that's the bit where he's basically saying, didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? And the last bit at the bottom, and they not understood the word that he spoke to them, which I quite like that they didn't have a clue either. But in the middle bit, you might notice that the word house is in brackets. Can you all see that? Probably. And that's because um, it's not there. It's because the translators have had to add it in to try and make it make sense to us because it wasn't there in the original. And before we kind of get a bit worried about that, let me just give you an example. Um, The other week, I remember going uh, uh, and I was talking to somebody and they said, well, why don't you chance your arm? Have you heard that phrase? And I thought that's such an odd phrase. Why don't you chance your arm? And I thought if I was to translate that into another language, how weird the French or Germans or anyone else would think about chancing your arm. That wouldn't make any sense. And so very often we need to make these kind of decisions. How can we make it make sense? So what do we understand by this little phrase about being in my father's house? One more slide. There are three options, all of which we think Luke meant to be there and all of which hopefully will help us. So here is option number one. Option number one, literally it means in my father's house. And most of your Bibles will say just that. We know from our Chronicles reading that a house had been built for God. Interestingly, a house that he didn't really want. And if you know your Old Testament fairly well, you might know the bit when King David is at home and he's in his nice big house made of cedar wood. And he looks out of his window and he notices that God's temple is is a tent. And he's like, well, that's a bit rubbish. Why have I got a great big house and God's got a tent? And so he approaches Nathan the prophet and says, is it okay for me to build God a house? I'm living in a palace and look at his tent. And God says this, will you build me a house to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until now, I haven't lived in a house. 
I've been moving around all the time with a tent as my home. As I have moved with the Israelites, I have never said to the tribes, why have you not built me a house of wood? Isn't that interesting? That it would have been an obvious thing for them to build God a house, but God says, no, I didn't need one. That wasn't what I wanted. It's, it's an interesting point for us to think, do we always know what God wants? Or sometimes is the obvious thing not necessarily what he wants? But God seems to kind of acquiesce and to, uh, to sort of agree because God says a little bit later, I will choose a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they can live in their own homes and Solomon can build a house for me, David's son, and I will let his kingdom rule always. So God sort of says, yeah, that's okay. We'll plant the people. They're not going to be wandering in the same way anymore. And that's exactly what Solomon does. And that's where we had our passage where the priests have to get out the way. I love that God doesn't wait, but he fills the temple and he starts to kind of inhabit this place, even though they hadn't quite finished with it yet. There's something lovely about that, isn't there? That God so dwelled and wanted to be amongst his people. Just as a little side note, you might wonder, why are there chapter after chapter about how to build the temple in the Old Testament? They're not the most exciting chapters. But Hebrews 9 might give us a bit of a clue that the tabernacle or the temple is a copy. Jesus, it says, passed through a more perfect tabernacle or temple, not made of human hands, not part of this creation. Or Psalm 11, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. So that what was built in the Old Testament was a copy of what is in heaven. And I don't know when you pray where you imagine God is, but perhaps that will give us some food for thought. So Jesus says, I am in my father's house, the God who made the whole world, who came to dwell in Solomon's temple. That is my father. And it's an amazing claim, helps us to know who he is. Here's the second possible meaning. Jesus is asked where you were, and he says, I am about my father's work, about his business. That's what I was doing. What was his father's business? Revealing truth explaining to the people what the Torah, what the Bible actually says, debating, discussing with people. And as you look through the whole of Luke, when we kind of work our way through it, it's worth bearing in mind, is Jesus primarily a healer? Is he primarily a teacher? Is he primarily like a social worker? Like, where does, where does he fit? And I would say a lot of what Jesus prioritizes is teaching, making sure that we have truth so where was I? I was about my father's work. The third option is that Jesus was telling them, I was with my father's people. And remember, all of these are equally true and you can find them in the passage. I was with my father's people, which you might think is a slightly odd thing to say for a carpenter because he's not one of the teachers and yet that's what he develops into. Matthew 15, 24 says, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He was trying to correct the people in the temple first before that message then went out. And I love that in the middle of that, God seems to, Jesus seems to understand his identity, that he isn't just a carpenter. So where was Jesus? He was in his father's house. He was about his father's work. He was with his father's people. So just take a moment for yourself. 
What does that help us to think about as Christians? Perhaps it helps us to think that the temple of God is now within us. If you're a Christian, God's come to dwell in you. And so part of your identity is about having that within you, that you are at home with God. Part of your identity as a Christian is to be about your father's work. The most natural thing in the world for you to be doing is the things that God calls you to. Explaining his truth, praying for people, seeing the world changed. And finally, with my father's people, I don't know how comfortable you are in church. Is this family? My hope is that it would be. And that's the third thing that you might take from this for yourself, to know that this is your family, that we are here for you as brothers and sisters. And just like Jesus was so obviously with his father's people, so we would be the same too. A final thought. What do we learn about Jesus from these chapters? We learn that he was unintimidated. Something that I've been praying about leading into this at the age of 12, being unintimidated. Wouldn't that be great? We could just talk to people about our faith and not worry about it and not feel intimidated. He knew who he was. This is my father's house. Didn't you know where I would be? But finally, he was humble. Wouldn't it have been tempting to just say to Joseph and Mary, you morons, (laughs) I know so much more than you do. (laughs) But he doesn't do that. He's happy to sit under their authority. And again, that tells us something about Jesus and something about his authority and something about the way that we should be as Christians. Let's just take a couple of minutes and we're going to spend some time in prayer asking God, what does he want us to take away from this today? Holy Spirit, we ask you right now that you would speak to each one of us about being at home with you, about being at your work, about being comfortable with your people, your family. Father, we pray that you would take away any intimidation we feel, either about talking to other Christians and admitting what we know and don't know and where we're up to, but also the same with people who don't know you yet. Would you remove that intimidation from us? Give us a confidence like Jesus had. We pray, Father, that where we perhaps don't feel completely part of the family, Lord, would you help us to feel that? Would you give us good connections with our brothers and sisters?
And we pray, Father, that we would know your favour on our lives. That we would know that we are about your work and it's the most natural thing in the world for us to be at work. Help us to just be aware of you smiling down upon us. Guide us and bless us and encourage us and lead us to know you more as we walk through Luke's gospel, we pray. Amen.